Hello and welcome to this special podcast from the Wooden Speaks Big Locals IPPR event in Doncaster. My name is Georgie Burr, I work for Local Trust and we've come here today to hear about the climate crisis and how it might affect the residents in the big local areas of South Yorkshire. We're going to be looking at how communities and the government need to respond to this. Hi everyone, I'm James, I work at Local Trust. We had this idea probably first sort of June, July time and thought oh, it wouldn't be amazing if we could have a conversation about the climate crisis with people from big locals and the community. I hope we have a fun day, as much as you can have a fun day when you're talking about the climate crisis. Climate change is starting to become an area of interest for many of the people in our big locals, so it's a critical conversation we're having today for that reason alone. We're going to think a little bit about the scale of the challenge making sure as best we can that the response to climate change is socially and economically just and doesn't increase poverty but decreases poverty is what this is about and the ideas that you come up with will be taken away by the commission directly fed into the reports that they do which will be looked at by our leaders in Westminster and I hope we will have an impact as a result of that so really exciting day we thought we'd do a quick warm-up we're going to ask you to stand in a line according to how you feel about the climate crisis. If you're not that worried about it, we want you to stand over that side. And if you are very worried about it indeed, you'd stand over that side. The icebreaker is to ask school children, big local residents, policymakers, journalists and everybody else who's turned up in the room how worried they are about climate change. The left side of the library is for the very worried and the right side of the library is for the not worried at all. Most people are on the left side or the middle. I can't say I'm not worried about it because I am, but I'm not fanatically worried about it, if you know what I mean. So I'm in the middle because I don't really know too much about it. There's over 7 billion people on the planet and what difference can I make? By the end of the day, maybe I'll know a bit more. You're standing in the middle of the library. Are you worried about climate change? It's not that I'm not worried, unless there's some massive revolution in the way capitalism works. I don't know what can be done about it. The way that we operate society, the way that capitalism is structured, the way that growth is unsustainable. It's an economic question just as much as anything else. You're not, not I, worried. I'm not, not worried. I am worried, but I'm not extremely worried because I need to know what I'm worried about. Aha, right. So there we go. A little insight into where the room is. Here's Sale West Bid Locals, Ralph Rudden. Each of us have got our own priorities, be it transport, health, education, either by good design or accident. That golden thread that connects all 150 big local areas. Environment and climate change is the one that affects all of us. And we need to get people to realise it and act as a collective. And this is the start of the process, I think. Local MP and ex-Labour leader Ed Miliband is particularly concerned with how climate change might affect South Yorkshire and his constituents in Doncaster. He's here today in his capacity as a co-chair of the Environmental Justice Commission. I'm really pleased to be here and I want to welcome everybody who's come from outside our area and obviously welcome everybody who's from our area. It's a great privilege for me to be part of this event. Even though the election may not be talking about it that much, this is the most important issue that we face. It needs the engagement of people throughout the country. It can't just be done from you know, Westminster or Whitehall. It's got to be done with local people. So really important that we talk about how we can tackle the climate emergency but we're gonna only bring people with us if we also tie it into people's everyday concerns. Jobs, air quality, the places they live, social justice and fairness. 
Because if it's just about saving the planet, if it's just about avoiding disaster now in five years time, 10 years time, 20 years time, I don't think that's enough to carry the country with us when you've got lots of people who are worrying about the end of the week, never mind the end of the world. And unless those people are engaged in this issue, we're never gonna succeed. There was a very famous speech, which some people will know about, by the American civil rights leader, Martin Luther King, and it was called the I have a dream speech. He didn't say, I have a nightmare. He said, I have a dream. So he was trying to inspire people with the positive world we could build, not just the negative world that we needed to leave behind. And I suppose that takes me to the work of the Environmental Justice Commission, because why I care about it is because I think this isn't just important for saving the planet for the future generations, which is an incredibly important thing, but it's also important because it can be about jobs for people in Doncaster. If you think about the fact that we've got to insulate and change the way we heat 27 million homes across the country, that's hundreds of thousands of jobs for people to do. If you think about the fact that we've got to start generating renewable energy, more renewable energy, solar, wind and all that, again, that's lots and lots of jobs for people to do. Tending of land, farmers, agricultural land, what we do with our land, that's absolutely fundamental. So I think there's a massive jobs agenda here, electric vehicles, better public transport we can change by changing the way our towns and cities are planned and built. Although I kind of came in just as you were doing the line about how worried you were and I accidentally ended up in the least worried. Uh, and I promise you, I'm not the least worried. I, I'm, at, I'm at the, I'd have been fighting to get to the bookshelves uh, over in that corner, because I'm really worried about this. It is an emergency, we've got to tackle it. So I'm absolutely not saying it isn't a crisis and it is a crisis and it is, still isn't being taken seriously enough in politics, but there's also a positive agenda here to be built. Unless we get the ideas of people throughout this country, we're never gonna succeed. It can't be sort of thought up in an ivory tower somewhere. It's gotta come from the lived experience of people in our communities. This is the first one of these, I think I'm right in saying that the IPPR has done so. It's brilliant for us and for them that you're all here. I wanna know about the conclusions that come out of this. We want to integrate it into the report we do. And I think there'll be great ideas coming out of this. One crucial part of the agenda for tackling this emergency, I think, is how do we make sure that the workers who are currently in the oil industry, the gas industry, lots of areas that rely on fossil fuels in particular, which are gonna have to be phased out, how do we make sure that they are properly protected? How do we make sure that there is what they call a just transition for them? John, local councillor, Councillor Mouncey, as I should call you. John will uh, do. Uh, John will do. You were a miner at Brodsworth. Yes, correct. Um, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about your experience of the, the transition. Yeah. And I know you were standing quite on the worried part, weren't you, about the issue? Here's local councillor and ex-miner John Mouncey, who has lived through one economic transition when the collieries were closed down in the 1980s. Yeah, I came down to work at Brodworth Main Colliery in 1970. At that time, there, there was 4,000 men working at Brodworth Main Colliery, producing a million and a half tonnes <laughs> of coal every year. All those households burning coal, you can just imagine what it was like in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even the 80s. The atmosphere was poisoned by coal. You may think it's ironic for a coal miner to tell you this, you know, it's not. I've seen the devastation. When you see poor men coughing the lungs up, when you see people outside, didn't ever work at the mine, suffering with bronchitis and emphysema. That was the cause. And I look at my students here, 
This is their future now. And if we don't get to it and attack it with a great deal of more gusto than what we're doing now, this planet could be gone in 60, 80, 100 years time. But these young people here deserve better. And you people here, I hope you're on the same side as me. I'll fight the day I die to make sure that you young people here have a future like I never had. So thank you very much indeed. We've got Professor Paul Chatham with us now. He's about to run for a train, so he's quickly going to explain to us. Cycle for a train, indeed, yeah. So he's going to explain about his findings from the morning. So what I'm trying to achieve is to make us all budding community climate scientists by understanding the challenge of what exactly the climate and nature emergency is. So I think we've got to get our heads around, you know, what our local carbon budget is, how we reduce carbon radically at community level, but how citizens can get organised and change, and what we need to do at household level, transport level, industry level, that kind of thing. Could you give us a highlight of some of the stats that were in your um, presentation with regards to South Yorkshire? Certainly so. Taking some basic government statistics, we can see that carbon emissions in South Yorkshire are about 7 million tonnes. We need to zero that within about 20 years, so that means pretty transformative and radical action across uh, housing, making all homes insulated, transport, massively moving away from private cars basically and, and, and a road-based freight, completely changing land use, diets, the nature of industry. But while all that sounds quite negative, I mean, what it, what this means to South Yorkshire actually is a really great news story. And anywhere else you might live in the country, you know, be it West Yorkshire or Berkshire or wherever, yeah? So this means a green jobs bonanza, this means uh, enter fuel poverty, this means great free public transport, this means beautiful green spaces. So rather than the terror of the climate emergency, this means a beautiful green, fair and just Britain in 2030. So, Ed Miliband, thanks for coming along for the event today. What are the challenges for balancing the local economy with cutting carbon? I think if you want to improve your local economy, you need to rise to the climate emergency and meet it, because this is the biggest job creator, happiness creator, local improvement creator that we can possibly imagine. Because if we really invest in tackling the climate emergency, there'll be lots of employment for people, we'll have more green spaces, we'll cut down on air pollution, we'll change the way people get around so it's easier to go around by public transport. So I think it's right to be truth-telling about the disaster that awaits us if we don't act. But I think equally we've got to tell people about the benefits there can be if we do. And what do you think we can learn from the end of coal in Doncaster for the just transition? Well, I think we heard in the session we had with uh, John Mouncey, who was a miner, that it was abrupt, it was unplanned, and it left the workers high and dry. He was saying, we've got to move on, we've got to look to the future jobs, but they've got to be there for people. And we've got to give them the proper training, the proper retraining, the proper opportunities and then I think it is possible to, to take people with us. And why do you think events like this help? This has got to be led from the grassroots and that's what Local Trust does so well because if this is imposed from the top, I don't think it's going to work but it's about learning from people on the ground who actually have the best solutions and also can sort of tell you the things that you know, can be done. I was just talking to a local school, Outward Academy, they're about to go plastic free on Monday. You know, that's just something that a school is doing. A young lady from the school was saying to me, look, it really came home to us when we did a local litter pick because connecting the local to the global is really, really important. If ever there was something that needed to be citizen-led right across classes, across the country, it's tackling the climate emergency. Traditionally, funding comes from Westminster. What's your view on just giving funding to communities and letting them decide? This has definitely got to be not just owned by local communities in terms of events like this, but owned by local communities in terms of 
action being taken. This should be like a war effort. This should be like an, a, a sort of a national war effort. And, you know, we were quite good at the war effort uh, in the Second World War, and we're well known for it. It's a war against the climate emergency, and the war effort was local as well as national. I actually think we can really bring people together and generate enthusiasm, but it needs resources. This won't be done on a shoestring. If we invest, so much money will flow back, not just in tax revenue of workers, but in savings for people, in their homes, all of the health benefits. There's a huge amount that can be done if there's the will. Uh, mass mobilisation is definitely needed, and I think people will be up for it if we make it possible for them to do so. I think if we say to people, right, you've got to go green, it's all on you, people are going to sort of shrug their shoulders and say, well, how do you expect us to do that? But if we take people with us and, and make it possible for them to go green, I think anything is possible. I'm not just doing the podcast today. I'm actually also part of the discussion, which is a way of bringing out people's opinions without letting one voice dominate. This session this afternoon is called a World Cafe. Alistair, will you tell us about the World Cafe method? Yeah, thanks. I mean, the, the World Cafe is a facilitation approach. It's not mine. It's an international approach that's been used the world over. It's essentially an engagement tool to let people talk and to focus on things that really matter. Each table has a question or a discussion point. In this case, we have different themes from the climate change discussion. You need to ensure that you record what people say. A lot of time we have these events and, and people go away and it, it disappears into the air. The tables are covered in paper for a reason and they're covered with pens and coloured pens for a reason. People can be writing down their notes, scribbling their thoughts. If they can't get a word in edgeways, they can still contribute and that's all collated on the table. It's looking to help us all communicate more effectively and to join up our thinking. And it differs because each person in the group gets a chance to discuss the question whether they're speaking or whether they're drawing or whether they're writing. Now, the more ideas are shared, the better picture or vision is built. And that's one of the real benefits of this. At the end of the session, having used these guidelines as you move around from table to table, the result will be that we have collated our collective intelligence of everybody who's attended. And that collective intelligence can then be used to influence and improve as I say, this isn't mine, so I can't claim it, but it's a hugely effective approach. And what you find is people engage in topics in a way that general conversation, general table conversations don't achieve. So I'd encourage anybody, look into it, Google it, YouTube it, you'll find it. So we've got six themes that people are covering. Extreme weather and land use, we've got transport, we've got jobs in the green economy, food and recycling, energy production and its use. So let's see what they're discussing over the buildings table. In Manchester, where we live, at night time, when you walk around in the city centre, there are all these office blocks, all the lights blazing, and you think, what is going on? Why do they need... I mean, presumably there might be cleaners in there, but why every single floor in the block needs to have the lights on for maybe a few cleaners just cleaning on one floor at a time? You don't need to use this. Why not switch it off? Why don't they do that? What should individuals do? What should... What can Big Local do? What should the government do? We can all make little changes that we're talking about, such as, you know, every individual can, but it's such a huge thing that it's going to have to be dealt with at a higher level. You know, we can all do our little bit, but then there'll be all those who are not doing it. So there's, it's a real wake-up call for, for everybody. People at this table are talking about energy and its use and the opportunities. We've had lots of discussions on renewable energy and energy efficiency and kind of some of the challenges of implementing it and funding it and 
how to make that transition fairly. You hear these stories where people are powering engines using Coca-Cola because they break it down into the base elements of hydrogen and oxygen. Honda have done it with their cars, a hydrogen fuel cell. But those technologies are not being invested in for use in buildings, in domestic or in commercial uses. The only waste product of that sort of system is water. Pepsi is available as well. <laughs> I actually have got a relative in Denmark and the whole town at the top of the hill have got a big wind farm but everybody in that village gets a reduction. They get the money from that wind farm and it is a communally owned. Yeah. You know, it's not a big business raking in profits. There's two, there's two sides to energy production and use, isn't there? Well, there's, there's the different technologies to create energy and then there's, there's using it efficiently and not wasting it. You know, so for example here, uh, apart from these main lights, which you do have to switch on and off, every other room is sensors. The toilets, the kitchen, the other office. You walk in, they go on. You walk out, five minutes later they're off. That's what you need for teenagers. <laughs> We're just going to have a little listen at what's going on at the transport table. But how many people in this room actually got a taxi from Doncaster Station to get here? You could be talking about six, seven, eight different taxis to get here. Did anyone think of trying to find a location in Doncaster City Centre that would have been easy? But it's, a, it's attitude as well, because I'm in part of a walking group that where I try to put on walks where you can use public transport. That's good. And then a lot of them will not do it. Why? Because A, they've got to get to the public transport, and B, when you say, well, you could have got on that bus, yes, but I don't like going by bus because it takes longer and not pleasant, and um, I'm going to come by car. So they're driving from, say, 40 minutes to go to a walk in the Bay District on their own. They're not even sharing with each other, even though you try to put a scheme in. So it is people's mindset, isn't it? And, and I think the bottom line to yeah. that one is... Public transport needs to be affordable. Exactly. That's right. Folks, that's it. And a lot of the time, older people don't work. Those that do work, they should get the free public transport because they're the ones that are using cars every day. So they're the ones that should get the incentives. We're here at the food and recycling table to see what people have to say on this topic. A quick fact that we've got here that the UK's food system contributes to about 19% of the UK's human-made greenhouse gas emissions. So it's pretty significant. And... We're talking about the challenges and the opportunities of that in a climate crisis world and what that means for us individually and in communities and for national government as well. <laughs> and ladies of our age do not have food waste. <laughs> it is amazing what we can do with any kind of leftover. The role of Last takeaways. I'll tell you what's bad with ours. Last takeaway. Policy on bins across different local authorities. Certain areas can't put certain things in. You go to the next town, they can put more in their blue bin than we can. Spent years washing all my yoghurt pots and margarine tubs out, putting them in religiously. Went to a recycling meeting and got told Doncaster Council didn't take them. And the local recycling centres that we do have, where you take your waste, whatever, it's either short or we don't take that or yeah. you can't bring that in. And if your son takes something down for you in his van, even though it's not got a name on it, no vans. Recycling, make it a bit simpler and so on. Less takeaways, please, because yeah. takeaways are causing a throwaway culture, which causes food to be thrown into hedges, draws animals to the edge of the road, they're getting killed, we're losing our hedgehog population, we're losing toads, we're losing... All 
all sorts of things that have been drawn. Deers were at the back of my house the other week. Why are they coming that close? They've never done that in 15 years of living there. And it's because there's a takeaway shop at the end of the street. We've got seagulls in Doncaster. Why are they here? Because there's food available all over the floor. And it's not good for them either. It sounds very interesting at the Jobs and the Green Economy table. Let's go and have a listen. Lots of uh, concerns about the impact on carbon intensive industries, so risk of losing jobs that are unenvironmental. Thinking about jobs that you might actually not think of normally, so some retail jobs. What about people that work in petrol stations, for instance? Uh, When we move away from diesel, is it really creating as many jobs as everyone's saying? Also, jobs in the right places. Are we going to be creating the jobs in the same places that they're being lost? Lots of opportunities, though, could have create lots of jobs caring for the elderly and disabled. They don't all have to be new green jobs. Lots of jobs uh, in insulation, energy efficiency, transport, electrifying the rail. I think he's covered it all already. What else do you think there is? Is there any kind of risks or opportunities we haven't covered? The difficulty of getting to work, especially with these sort of floods and stuff that are going on at the moment, if you have local work and keeping people in Doncaster, that wouldn't be so much of a problem anymore. We go around to schools to teach kids on the local opportunities in Doncaster, just making them aware of all the opportunities that are going to come to them in the next few years, saying what they need to do to get those jobs, why they should stick at their education, and that really sets them up for the green economy in the future. Perhaps planning jobs uh, that are nearer your own home. So, yeah, yeah. That, you know, if you can work near home. I, I was saying I, for 30 years I walked to work. Um, it was literally across the road. It wasn't enough exercise, but it, it certainly saved my carbon footprint. Is there any data on working from home and whether that is a, a good thing for the environment? Working from home isn't sociable, is it? You're not interacting with other people. Some people do it and do it successfully. I'd hate it. We can increase the proportion of time that we work at home though, can't we? So, so quite, I, I quite often work at home on a Friday. I, I commute weekly, but if I was commuting daily, then, then that would be um, 20% less commuting. Yes. Because I'm one day a week at, at, at yes. home, and, and so we can do things like that. One thing that wasn't answered is how do you, for those of the people that don't want to consume less, how do we persuade them? What does government need to do? For those people that want to keep buying stuff and don't want to keep a TV for 20 years, how do we, how do we persuade people that aren't as convinced as we are? Good question. So it's a challenge. When we, Folks, you're in the home um, stretch. After this, we're going to have a break for some refreshments. The theme is extreme weather and land use. So people started to talk about preparing for future extreme weather. So building houses on stilts like they do in Holland. Then we talked about how that needs to be subsidised development because otherwise they'll become very expensive and those homes will only be available to people who can afford the green homes. We also talked about not paving over your driveway and paving over less areas because that actually creates runoff. When I moved in, I didn't do it. (laughs) This one was in all mining communities, there's an issue of subsidence. Your house being so close to a mine. So there was more of a question which was, is there a way of retrofitting mines as a way of helping to deal with flooding or land use? Oh, yeah. How do you retrofit like, mines? Fill them with concrete? <laughs> right, but that's all government, isn't it? Well, there was We're not really talking about our community involvement, are we? Yeah. Hi, Luke. This is Luke from IPPR. He's head of the Environmental Justice Commission. Hi. Luke, how do you feel today's gone? I think it's gone really well. It's been fantastic that so many people have actually taken a day out to engage 
with this issue. Quite a lot of high knowledge in the room, people really concerned about what it means for them, what it means for their families, businesses, jobs and local area. The best thing about today actually is the ideas that have come out, the things that people think that they can do individually at a local level, the things that they want to do uh, in the community and the things that they're asking of government. But just really the engagement in the issue and the willingness to work on it I think has been absolutely fantastic. Why are IPPR taking this bottom-up approach? So the IPPR set up the Environmental Justice Commission with the Institute for Public Policy Research. We come up with policy ideas to recommend to government for change to tackle the climate crisis. And what we wanted out of today really is people's ideas of how we can go about doing that. So lots of ideas that we can take to local government and national government about the change we need to make in order to tackle the climate crisis. A lot of the changes we've made so far to reduce our emissions in the UK, they've been done in the background. So we've reduced it in the power sector, most people haven't noticed. What's going to happen now is people are going to have to change the way we live, we're going to have to change our housing, the way we heat our homes, the way we get to work, the way we eat. It's going to make a big difference to people's lives. We need to do it really quickly if we're going to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. And the only way we're going to do it is if we build support for the changes we're going to make. And the only way we're going to do that is if you engage with local people and figure out how it's going to work in their area. So that's why we wanted to do it. Well, it's been a really tremendous event here at Woodland Speaks Big Local in Doncaster. It's given everyone a lot to think about in terms of how the climate crisis will affect local places, both in terms of the threats and the opportunities for communities. If you'd like to learn more about big local events near you, please go to the website at localtrust.org.uk and look for the events page. Thanks for listening. Bye.